Greetings, programs, and welcome to the I.O. Tower, a podcast for all things Tron. I'm your host, David Fleming. In part three of my interview with Tron Visual Effects Supervisor Richard Taylor, we jump in with Jeff Bridges, Cindy Morgan, and Bruce Boxleitner playing video games and hear more about Sid Mead's and Mobius's designs and the challenges of creating the first film ever to take place in a computer environment. Richard shares stories from the making of Tron, like when their massive lights blew out the Transformers in all of Burbank, California. He reflects on the Oscars from that year and why Tron wasn't nominated despite being the first film to feature 20 minutes of full-frame computer-generated imagery. Tron didn't do very well at the box office, but Richard describes how a key marketing opportunity fell through, leaving much of Tron's potential moviegoers in the dark. Richard opens up about the stroke he suffered last August, his greatest fear, his renewed admiration for the human mind and life, and how he's recovering and growing creatively. Lastly, he pays tribute to legendary visual futurist Sid Mead, who passed away in December. Again, welcome to the I.O. Tower. Jeff Bridges was very enthusiastic about his role, and Cindy Morgan was terrific, and Bruce Boxleitner. And we had video games on the actual stage where we were shooting, and they would play them all the time, and Jeff would be very competitive. It was, of course, it was all those early video games from Asteroids to whatever. It was while everything was still arcade. Yeah, I've like seen many one. pictures on the internet with them behind the scenes playing the games. It looks like great fun. Yes, they were. They loved it. And, uh, of course, we had to design for Flynn's Arcade the actual Tron game, which Bally finally made. Right. And the whole design of it had to appear in the movie and then be recreated by Bally for the actual arcade game. And all the graphics on it, all the line drawings and all that stuff were, again, stuff that I did by hand. It was yes. rapidograph. So every line on that thing or pretty much in the movie if it was on a set or on a costume other than the parts of the costumes that Sid designed like the back piece which you so beautifully reproduced and uh, you know some other things Sid also designed other characters that a few of them actually got made you don't see them in the movie very much when he finally crashes the recognizer and kind of falls out right and the bit escapes there are a few characters walking around down there yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes, to be honest, such creative artwork. <laughs> yeah, so if you look at the making of Tron, the book, and so forth, you'll see lots of Sid's other designs. He was really good at designing costumes. I mean, if you look at his work through his own work through years, I mean, there are projections of, you know, uh, what people would be wearing in the future. And, uh, you know, his world, all his illustrations usually were a living world with they were put in, whether it was an incredible streamlined car or a, a gyro-balanced unicycle in a ring world, whatever, they were always like living worlds. So yes. he was really good at costume design, and he did a lot of that. Mobius also, Jean-Gerard Mobius, was, I mean, we had two of the top designers in fantasy of all working on the movie. Uh, yes. Jean-Gerard Mobius, who passed away a few years ago, and Sid Mead. You know, Stephen was really fortunate that we got them. And Bovius rode to work every day with Stephen. And uh, he's a very entertaining guy, but he uh, did a lot of the storyboarding of the movie. A lot of the storyboards were done by Bovius. He could draw really quickly. And you know his work from Heavy Metal Magazine and all that Definitely. stuff. Right. Quite a person. So he designed the Solar Sailor. And that is the only vehicle he designed. All the rest were done by Sid, including the MCP and Sark's carrier and all of that. But 
the Solar Sailor actually is my favorite vehicle in the movie, <laughs> just because it's less hard edge and kind of had those gossamer wings. Yes, the solar panels have some continuous shading to them that lends mm -hmm. to the uh, computer effects curvature and lighting of the time. Yes. Well, and they were translucent, they weren't opaque. And, and then the fact that it's riding on a beam of energy and the whole sequence when they get short-circuited and Flynn goes up to the front and puts his arm in the beam and, right. you know, diverts the energy and so where that was interesting stuff to do. One of the things that people may not realize in the animation, when I was discussing how all the effects animation was drawn by hand and eventually made into backlit artwork, one of the things I did, when you just expose something at an exposure and you want it to look bright or you want it to flare, you just change the exposure or the amount of time that the camera is looking and the film is looking at the artwork. But what I did, for example, in the scene where Tron is standing in the beam and he uh, sends the disc back up to Alan, right. that could have been really kind of boring in a way. But what I did was I changed the exposure per frame by a quarter of a stop or a half stop or a quarter stop every frame. So that light, if you watch that scene, it pulses. Yeah. It's, it's not just stable. It has this kind of vibrating quality to it. So that's a trick I used quite often in the film to make light have energy instead of just being, you know, a solid beam. If it just had this kind of flicker built into it, it created energy, which I thought was cool. That's really cool. And, and to hear you talk about how you animated those frames one by one uh, gives me uh, right. some inspiration. On I've tried to sort of do that in the digital realm with uh, basically extracting the frames from a video I'd record wearing the prop costume. and. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote some code to uh, animate, and that's exactly the word I used was to animate certain digital effects to try to accomplish similar goals of intensifying mm -hmm. and, or diminishing. And, and um, mm -hmm. it's fun to do, and I think it's getting better. But to see the work you did on Tron and just the analog and intimate effect of the lighting is just really impressive. Right. Well, again, to me, Tron was the firewall between the analog filmmaking world and the digital filmmaking world. You know, we had limits to what we could do with computer simulation then, especially with modeling and the software. I knew the minute I saw raster graphics, you know, we were working with geometries in the old adage in filmmaking or in everything is when you have lemons make lemonade. So we, uh, you know, the objects were designed for the way they were modeled and generally to reflect a particular kind of technological look to everything. Because, you know, some people have said, you know, Tron really was not a science fiction film. It was an art film in a way, because that's one of the things that makes it endure was the design and the look of things. That's why, you know, bands and fashion and a lot of other things have emulated Tron yes. through the years, which is one of yes, the reasons the film has endured because of its sure design. So if you really think of it as an art film and not a science fiction film, it's quite different but it was the first film that took place inside a cyber environment tron was the first time anybody had ever attempted a visual realm inside of a computer and you know yes. since then there's been lawnmower man and, you know there have been other movies now i mean matrix for one right but um so when we were shooting it was totally blacked out all the props and everything and the characters were wearing white outfits like the one that you so beautifully reproduced 
and we were shooting with 65 millimeter film you know big camera big big negative that was the biggest negative that you could shoot at that time <laughs> wow since then imax and other things have evolved because imax the film runs through the gate horizontally but in motion picture cameras the film up until vista vision ran through the gate vertically and then yeah. vista vision which was used in star wars and and imax is 70 millimeter vista vision so you have these huge frames that are moving through the projector and through the camera uh, laterally hmm. in any case so we had 65 millimeter in the camera and the f-stop of the film i don't remember whether it was 52 47 i don't remember the stock exactly but we needed to light the characters very flat so they didn't have heavy shadows so their costume was lit as flat as possible so we could isolate the circuits and the right. body and all that and we could add shading and so forth in post so we had to light them incredibly brightly we had a massive <laughs> amount of lights on the stage which made it very hot but one day we blew out the transformers in burbank california <laughs> from the amount of energy we're drawing on that stage and the city came in and said hey you know you got to knock this off you know you just blacked oh, out wow you just blacked out burbank <laughs> no that's amazing yeah so one of the stories that's interesting is you know most people so many people saw the film when they were 10 11 12 years old and people would say well those images were made with a computer again the human characters in the film were not made with a computer but all of the crafts that would have been traditionally models yes. were done with a computer so people were fascinated by computer simulated so the process by which uh, films are nominated for academy awards is the academy looks at films and in special effects they select you know 10 12 films because it at that time, there were only uh, two or three finalists in every category. And the way those finalists are determined is they have what's called the bake-off at the Academy Theater, where the films that have been selected, you cut together 10 minutes of imagery from the film of the effects, and then a spokesperson stands in front of the audience and answers questions. Well, I was the spokesperson for Tron. And the films that were nominated, you got to remember... 1982 was one of the most prolific years in science fiction filmmaking. Blade Runner, Poltergeist, E.T., Das Boot, uh, Firefox, yeah. uh, The Thing, Conan, the list goes on. And Tron. All came out that year. That's amazing. Some of my good friends, Richard Edlund, who I hired at Robert Abel and Associates and so forth, who has won you know, multiple Academy Awards for Star Wars movies and uh, Poltergeist and other stuff, and the Raiders movies. They were there representing the films that they worked on. So basically what would happen is you'd show the footage and then you'd stand up and people would ask questions. And usually the questions were, you know, from knowledge, like uh, what was the scale of those models? Were they quarter scale, half scale? The high speed explosion photography, was that 300 frames a second? Did you do matte paintings or glass paintings? Uh, how many opticals did you do in the movie? That kind of thing. And the committee that decided was not the full audience. There were 40 people that were in the special effects committee in the academy. There were people that were from the effects world, like Linwood Dunn, and people that had optical services or model shops or were directors of photography, that kind of thing. But the year that Tron 
was one of the ones that were selected, 82. They changed that committee to 100 people, and they added actors and directors, producers, and people who didn't really know the technology of special effects. So when everybody got up to answer questions, they would usually get those questions, as I mentioned. Uh, when I stood up to answer questions for Tron, no one raised their hand. And this was an audience of like 1,200 people or something. No one raised their hand. And I finally said, there must be some questions about how this film was created. And finally, tentatively, somebody raised their hand and said, what kind of camera did you use? And, and, I, and I said, we used 65 millimeter to shoot the live action on stage and on location. And we had 18 animation cameras that were shooting artwork under platen. So all together, maybe about 24 cameras. And um, then there were no more questions. And finally, I said, there must be another question. I mean, I thought I was here to answer questions about Tron, not the Twilight Zone. And, uh, yeah. you know, because it was like the Twilight Zone. I mean, nobody would raise their hand. Finally, another person <laughs> raised their hand and said, what kind of model, uh, you know, what kind of models? Did you make any models? And I said, yes, we did. Uh, we made study models for particular computer models that we knew we had to build set pieces to match. But I need to explain to you. Then I answered the question that everybody really wanted the answer. You know, it's like when you're in grade school and high school something and you're in a math class and there's something <laughs> nobody in the school class understands and you say, geez, I wish somebody would ask the question. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that kind of situation. Finally, somebody said, did you make any models? How do you And what I knew was that people just didn't know what somebody wanted to say was, how does a computer make those pictures? Right. So I said, so what we do with computer simulation, and I said there were three, four different computer simulation companies that worked on this film. Uh, we did not make physical models. We made computer models, and we made them by computer programs that allow us to add and subtract solid shapes to create a shape. Or we make polygonal models. To make a polygonal model, we drew the orthographic views of the solar sailor, that is the top view, the front view, and the side view, quite large, and put that on a digitizing tablet. And we divide the model up into polygons, or think of them as rectangles. But basically, the model is divided up so it's like a, a mesh, a grid. And then on that digitizing tablet, all the vertices of those are the model maker uses a cursor to click all those things. And eventually what you get in the computer and on the computer screen is a wireframe model. Then we do test frames of lighting that model where those polygons go away and they become a smooth surface. And we move the lights around and so forth until we like the look. And we determine the color and the, and the surface reflectivity and so forth of the different parts of the model. So the computer is imitating the effect of light hitting an object by shooting thousands of little beams of light, rays of light, we call it ray tracing, that hits the model and bounces the light to a theoretical camera. And every beam of light hits at a different angle and therefore has a different value when it gets to the camera. So I answered the question and... That must have blown their minds. I mean... Well, I would imagine this is the first time anyone had an opportunity to speak these kinds of terms and technology to an audience that large. Correct. And so I said, you know, had we made physical models, 
we probably would have spent less time. The amount of man hours it took to digitize this stuff, fix the polygons, light it and shade it. And I said, we animate computer animation by setting keyframes where the object is on frame one, where it is on frame 12, where it is on frame 18, frame 24. And then the computer rounds off between those and the model makes its move. And in the computer world, we use a Cartesian coordinate system. That is, the middle of the world is zero and we have X, Y, and Z axes. And so everything in that world has to be defined by position in that world, where the camera is, where the model is, the pitch, roll, and yaw of a model, all of that, we had to determine every frame. And then the computer programmers typed in that data. Well, of course, I was speaking, you know, I, was, I might as well have been speaking in Pig Latin. And <laughs> anyway, so that was it. And then I said, are there any more questions? And there were no more questions. And I truly felt a kind of hostility in the audience while I was standing up there. I mean, gee, folks, if you've never seen anything like this and you don't have any questions. So I walked backstage after, and Richard Edlin was there, my, my dear friend, and Dykstra and others. And uh, I said, geez, Richard, that was so weird. I mean, I really felt hostility out there. What do you think's going on? Why do you think they were so angry? And he said, I think they think you cheated. And I said, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And he said, I think they think that the computer basically did everything. And so I sent Laurie Nichols, other people with us at Triple I, out to talk with people coming out of the theater and ask them what they thought of Tron. And the general responses were, that's it, that's the future, we're not going to have any jobs anymore, the next thing you know they're going to be doing John Wayne. And and all the, and she said, well, how do you think they, what they really believe, and this is true, they thought that somehow we typed in, you know, instructions and then the computer created this stuff. Like, oh, well, I'll type in, I want a solar cell that looks like it was designed by Mobius and has translucent wings and rides <laughs> on a beam of light. It's going left and right and hit enter. And the computer would just wow. do all this work. I mean, the amount of man hours in doing stuff, even today with the programs we have, people don't really realize. Yes, the computer renders and has tools, but the amount of man hours to create pretty much any kind of art is, is massive. So you must have really uh, frightened them in a sense, like for, for the future that, of the industry, perhaps. That's exactly true. And uh, they were pissed off, though. There goes the future, you know, we're all going to lose our job because you just type this shit into a computer and out comes whatever you want. So I was amazed. And uh, so we never got nominated as one of the three finalists. The three finalists were Poltergeist, E.T., and Blade Runner. And the film that won the best special effects that year, in my estimation, absolutely should have been Blade Runner. Um, Mm -hmm. Tron should have been nominated for a Technical Achievement Award, which is a separate award they give every year, as the first film to really use computer simulation as a full production tool. Right. Where you're actually creating full frame as a computer. You're not just doing some things that are on a TV monitor or you know, a part of the scene, but literally full frame negative. And, uh, you know, we did uh, close to 20 minutes of imagery for the film. So the film wasn't nominated and E.T. won the best special effects. And there are matte lines all around through E.T. I mean, E.T. is compared to Poltergeist or Blade Runner, my God. Uh, But that's because 
that committee that was 40 was 100 and you had these people voting who were, um, you know, actors and directors and those kind of things that didn't know how special effects. So they'd just go, oh, I like E.T. as a movie better than. So they were voting on the movie, not the effects in a sense. Yeah, and it makes me think that films that were as visionary as Blade Runner and Tron, which really were not immediately appreciated and have only become so much more appreciated as years and years go by. Right. That maybe maybe such stories and films and the use of technology to create these stories is uh, beyond the ability at the immediate time to recognize it. And maybe therefore it's nominated and awarded as such. Well, we just had uh, the Visual Effects Society Awards ceremony, our 18th Wednesday evening at the Hilton. It's a black tie event. We have 25 categories of special effects, and I'm on the awards committee, and I... We had over 500 entrants and all these, and that's a lot of vetting. And it's very, very precise about how you enter and what you can show, the before and afters. And I sit there with the rest of that committee, and we look at all of this computer simulated imagery. It's not not ever was totally simulated. Occasionally, there's a physical model or there's digital matte painting or something. But the complexity of special effects now are there's nothing that you can imagine that we cannot create on film now. Nothing. Right. As, as you know, we do photoreal human beings, starting back with Benjamin Button, Rachel, and the latest Blade Runner, whatever. There are, you know, in the latest Star Wars movies, there are computer-simulated human beings, and we get better and better at all that. So it's the most powerful visual tool ever created by man, as far as I'm concerned. And now we push the envelope so far. I mean, we do organics we do the fire the water all the water oceans and rainstorms and floods and fire the water the dust the smoke the physical destruction of architecture landscapes like san andreas and movies like that i mean god you could never have done that with physical models years ago so (laughs) it's it's just incredibly powerful what the computer can do and i was truly amazed at how little time it took between tron and Jurassic Park to finally create, you know, those dinosaurs running around and so forth and all that organic foliage and trees. Uh, That was, you know, roughly 10 years. So the hardware and software that evolved in just those 10 years was extraordinary, just amazing. And it has continued. Yes, it's amazing being Mm -hmm. uh, in the field of computer science and as a Mm -hmm. kid through college to see that 10 years go by that quickly to go from from the effects of Tron, um, which were groundbreaking at the time, to the effects of Jurassic Park, which were groundbreaking at their time. But as yes. you said, the, the delta, the difference between the two um, in terms of computing ability is remarkable. And, and yes. certainly I don't think anyone saw that coming that fast. Oh, no. I mean, the computer that we used on Tron at I was called a Foonly. It was a single pipeline computer. There was no multiprocessing. And so it took you know, hours of frame to render those pictures then. And the ray tracing was not nearly as complex as it is now, you know, with global rendering and high dynamic range and all of that. Right. But the number of people I have met through the years who have come up to me and said, oh my God, if it hadn't been for Tron, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Right. Because they had gone into special effects or computer science or whatever, because they went, wait a minute, you're telling me those pictures are made with a computer? How does that work? And so it, you know, inquisitive minds yeah. evolved into the sciences or through art or science or engineering 
to using computers. And uh, yeah. you know, it really me, is amazing. One of those, for me, is one of those that was affected by Tron in that way you just spoke of. I feel like since part of the story of Tron was about the actual computer being inside the computer or what that world was like, it mm-hmm. really captured my, um, my love for how the computers work. I, I love the way they mm-hmm. smell. You take them apart to fix the transistor or something, and, and <laughs> they smell wonderful, you know. And I was just one of countless people who, at that time, when computers were coming into the household, mm-hmm. where we were, were just really fascinated by these machines. And Tron was telling us a story of what it was like to be inside the machine, mm-hmm. in part yes. using the machines to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that is still unique. I mean, even yes. films like the matrix which was a wonderful film i enjoyed the trilogy mm. very much it just doesn't capture the same intimacy of the machine itself just like Tron yes does. Mm-hmm. well you know the decisions on how to visualize and stylize the interior was one of the fun things about working on the film everything we did on tron was a one-off you know nobody will ever make a film with that process that we used to stylize the human beings in the electronic world and the computers now are so much more. I mean, zillions of times. We have, there's more computer technology, in a sense, in your cell phone than there was in Tron. For example, <laughs> I was just thinking the same in, thing. In Tron Legacy, because we had several presentations where those of us who worked on the first film and guys who worked on Legacy, we spoke at the Director's Guild and Steve was there and, you know, and we'd have these round tables. And the amount of computer decisions made in the entire film of Tron in all 18 minutes of imagery are thousands of times less than the number of computer decisions made to do the particles in one frame of legacy. Wow. So, you know, particle animation and all of these programs now that create organic, you know, movement using real physics to make smoke or vapor or water or dust or to have something fall apart and collapse using the real effects of gravity. And uh, we have programs like Massive to create these massive armies that every individual in the army has its own path that it follows and they don't bang into each other and they follow the terrain and, you know, all that kind of stuff is used in all these shows we see all the time. We just take for granted, you know, uh, in television shows, uh, things like Game of Thrones and so forth. The effects in those series are just phenomenal. Anyway, so yes. that was uh, that was an interesting moment on Tron. The last thing I'll mention is that Disney, at the time that we did Tron, the head of the studio and the, the board of directors, Card Walker, and Ron Miller was the studio chief. And luckily, Tom Willite was on staff as one of the main producers, and he's the one that convinced them all to do Tron when Steve Lisberger and Donald Kushner came with the project to pitch it to Disney. Tom Willite's the one that said, wow, this is really unusual and different. We should do this. Because at that time, Disney was not creating a lot of new original imagery. They weren't doing very many animated films at all. Most of their energy was being dedicated to Epcot to get Disney World up and running. So the animators in the studio and people working on that, you know, they hadn't done any new animated films and they hadn't done Splash yet. So they didn't have Touchstone or any of their new live action. I mean, the Herbie movies were probably their most technically difficult and, you know, they're very limited. But the studio just wasn't creating much content. So they had a running feud going with the film distribution companies. There are X number of film chains in the world, 
They all go to a thing called NATO, the National Association of Theater Owners, once a year in Las Vegas, where the studios who are creating films for the coming year show what they can of films they're creating, and then the distributors make a decision on which ones they think they're going to want to uh, screen or show, and how much the marketing is going to go into them. And we made a NATO trailer for Tron that we showed, and everybody was pretty amazed. And it's actually the very first footage we did that was really truly complete and looked like the film and had some computer simulated models in it and so forth. So because Disney had no other product. All the other studios, if the distributors say, well, yeah, no, we don't want that film, they say, well, we've got this, and we've got this and this coming, and they say, oh, okay. But really, Disney was just recycling all their animated films, and Tron was the only thing that was new. When you market a film, even today, the amount of money that's spent to market a film sometimes actually exceeds the budget of the film. Uh, you know, if it's a, if it's a, $30 million film, they may spend $40 million on marketing, advertising. Marketing, of course, is print and television ads and trailers and movie theaters and, and now, of course, on the internet and everything else. So at the time, Disney was just, they didn't understand Tron. They really didn't. I mean, the executives. They only spent, I think it was five or six million dollars on marketing the film. Oh boy. Out there in middle America, people don't know what's coming unless they see advertising for it. In Hollywood and in the film industry, people knew about Tron being made because it was being covered by American Cinematographer and other things. And so there wasn't a lot of marketing in the newspapers and anything about Tron. So when it actually opened, you know, such a big deal is made of, you know, the opening week box office. Well, Tron's opening week was not very much. The film made its money back and so forth. Tron ended up being, you know, a $12 million film, but they only spent like five or six on marketing. One of the things, this is one of the real killers with Tron, is that because it was so unique and new, both Time and Newsweek were featuring it, were going to feature it on the cover of their magazines the same week. So on the cover of Time and Newsweek would have been a whole thing about Tron and then, of course, a big article on the inside. We actually did those covers. I designed them and composited them, and they had them and were printing them. And when the magazine came out on Monday, neither one of them had Tron on the cover. Schultz oh. was on one cover, and who was the Secretary of State? Haig was on the other, because Haig had resigned Secretary of State, and so they switched out the main article. And if Tron had been on the cover of those two magazines, it would have been the equivalent of about $12 million worth of marketing. Yeah. Oh, boy. But, but it didn't happen. And Steve Lisberger, to this day, has in his house, you know, the two covers framed. And it's, you know, like being stabbed in the heart, you know. It's like, yeah. my God, because we would have had so many more people go to the movie. And they would have understood yeah. it more because they could have read about it and the fact that it was computer simulated and, and that it had these stars. We did get some good press coverage. We had an article in Saturday Evening Post, Omni, and the Smithsonian Magazine and uh, Rolling Stone. So there was coverage on it, but it wasn't out there in kind of middle America. And so it did open in a nice theater here in LA and in New York, but in most parts of the country, it opened in like second class theaters and people didn't even, you know, Tron, what the hell is that? So it just didn't do well in the box office early, which gave Disney a whole negative 
feel about computer animation. John Lasseter wanted to work on the film and they didn't allow him. All the animators on the film, the effects animators, every one of them, none of them were from Disney. None of the inking and painting to isolate the circus art were done at Disney. In the closing titles, you see all those Chinese names from Cuckoo's Nest, which was a facility in Taiwan that Arnie Wong went over with videos that we did of how to make decisions on different circuits. So all of that inking and painting to isolate the circuits was all done in Taiwan, which meant every frame of the film, those big codalists, had to be flown to Taiwan, inked and painted, and then flown back. My goodness. Uh, and then composited. Again, I keep saying, you know, Tron was hand done, a handmade film. And because we were inventing the processes that we used, as we did at Ables, we invented those techniques. Anyway, so those are a couple of interesting things. Was really unfortunate about the time of Newsweek covers. That's really mm -hmm. uh, sort of a heartbreaking moment for sure. It was for, especially for Steve and all of us who worked on it, who knew we weren't getting that marketing out there in middle America. So that opening week's audience was not going to be that much. What's really fascinating about Tron is that since then, first of all, Disney got cold feet on doing computer animation for other projects. That's one of the reasons John Lasseter left Disney and went off and eventually started Pixar and mm -hmm. worked with Lucasfilm and all of that because Disney just said, computer simulation, what a waste of time. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, well, that's they don't feel that way now. <laughs> <laughs> um Again, there was a time when this technology was evolving in, and it was a unique time in the history of technology and the arts. Technology has always affected the arts. You know, whatever evolves in, be it, you know, going from egg tempera to oil, color, oil paint, uh, you know, just all the technology through art has always affected art. And artists use that technology, and they use it to the edge of what it can do. That's what artists do. The way it you was, used that art and created that art, the processes you were part of inventing and mm -hmm. to tell a story like Tron, it's just mm -hmm. going to last so much longer uh, than many films made with more safe techniques or traditional techniques. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's the box office success, but then there's the the legacy, if you will, uh, of that kind of art and storytelling, and, and it's going to live on for years. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I was actually starting to address: is that Tron is infinitely more popular now than it was in its day because again i say it's more an art film than anything of the way it looked and it has you know kind of echoed through time as a as a style as a look as a particular benchmark of imaging and that's one of my favorite things about the movie is that it has lasted regardless of its box office success in the day so now when there are screenings and you actually get to go to a theater and see it on the screen made of light, not on a monitor, right. but see a 70 millimeter print in the theater. It's really different than seeing it on a monitor or TV or something. When you actually see it made of light on the screen, it's really pretty amazing. I certainly hope to see it that way again. I hope you do. Actually, the very best way to see it, the way we showed it at the 30th anniversary was we used the Blu-ray Steve Lisberger and I, myself went in on a Da Vinci and timed every scene to get the colors right because there are incredibly subtle differences between sequences to give them a particular look for that sequence and to get the blacks black and the colors right 
And on Blu-ray, we did it beautifully. So at the Chinese theater for the 30th, we projected the Blu-ray and it was spectacular. <laughs> it looked better than the 70 millimeter print. Oh, good. Yeah, so if you ever get to see it uh, on a big screen from the Blu-ray, that's the best it can look. Okay, well, I've, certain, I've got the Blu-ray. I just need the big screen now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did want to ask you some, um, a lot of people, when they heard you had a stroke, were very mm -hmm. concerned. And I know on the Facebook groups and Instagram, there was a lot of outreach to ask if you're okay. And mm -hmm. um, Would you like to talk a few minutes about what happened? Well, I had a stroke uh, August 8th, and uh, it was not a blood clot stroke where, you know, they hit you really immediately and people collapse and so forth. I had more of a mudslide. <laughs> so my stroke literally took about 18 hours for the full effect to take place. So I ended up at the UCLA Neurological Emergency Room and then in ICU for almost two weeks. And since that, I've been through multiple facilities for 14, 15, 16 weeks. And now I am home. Uh, my main job daily is physical therapy because the first year after a stroke is when you can make the most improvement to bring back. So the effect that the stroke had on me is that it incapacitated my left side, my left leg, my left arm, my left hand. And, uh, you know, I played guitar and swam and all these things I can't do now that I expect to do again. But that's my main job is working to bring back. I can walk now with a cane. I can get around, travel. Most fortunately, my speech was not affected. I can still say anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> and uh, you're, you're doing better than me then. <laughs> and... Um, I didn't have any facial paralysis nor any cognitive damage, so I can think clearly. And uh, I had a slight little bit of vision problem that's now pretty much gone. So uh, I'm improving because I'm working at it, which you have to do. And I expect to be able to. But my greatest fear in having a stroke, the thing that unless one has had one, there's no way to possibly explain what it's like to have a stroke compared to anything that's ever happened to you if you've ever been knocked out or anything, but to actually wake up, my whole right side is totally functional, as it's always been. But right down the middle of me, my left side, my left hand, left arm, left leg, actually just didn't work, no matter how hard I thought about it. Trying to move a finger, I might as well have been trying to lift 300 pounds. So it was so daunting when I first you know, found myself awake and thinking about it, realizing what my restrictions were. My greatest fear was that I wasn't going to be able to remain creative, that I wasn't going to be able to create visual images and do that kind of work, which is that's who I am. It's what I do. And, uh, you know, the fact that my right side was fine, then I could still use the Wacom tablet and the computer. And I am back doing animation and been designing some really cool logos and doing graphic work for different people. So I am recuperating. I'm in I'm positive. I am uh, blessed that it wasn't any worse, but that I am dedicated to uh, recuperating and living a, as normal a life as I can. But people who have had strokes, there's no way to explain how it totally codifies how incredibly, incredibly powerful the human mind is, that it may be the most powerful thing in the universe. Everything that we do, every moment of every day that we take for granted, 
you know, your left hand, your right hand, you know, eating, touching your nose, tying your shoes, computing, playing an instrument, playing catch with a baseball, dancing, all those things we just take for granted. If there was a way that they could actually artificially induce a stroke and people could have a stroke induced for a day, experience that and then get back their functions, it would change people's lives. You would never take life for granted as much as we do. It's just incredible what we, what our minds can do. So having a stroke makes one so appreciative of the values of the mind and of life. That's one thing it has taught me. So I think about that stuff a lot now. I am actually one of the really lucky people that my career has lasted from the 70s until now because I've been able to move through special effects. I've been in the Directors Guild for 38 years and directed hundreds of commercials. And then I was in the gaming industry as Cinematics Director of Electronic Arts and before that uh, for uh, Microsoft Gaming Studios, which was really unique stuff. And now I'm involved in AR and VR and themed entertainment. So, you know, you get 10 years, 12 years at best. So I'm very lucky on that level. Well, David, I want to thank you for your enthusiasm and for the opportunity to discuss all of this. Um, you know, it's people like yourself who have, you know, remained fans of the film and dedicated to it and the Tron sector and all those people out there who are remaking Tron arcade games and making costumes. And I mean, it lives on, you know, and, uh, Again, thank you for this opportunity. Well, you're most welcome. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you about Tron. On December 30th, 2019, Sid Mead passed away, leaving us with his immeasurable and infinite works and these final words. I am done here. They're coming to take me back. Richard closes our podcast with a tribute to Sid and a calling to all artists to dance. Sid had one of those incredibly magic minds, like Nikola Tesla and or Leonardo da Vinci. When I explained to him how we had to model the stuff from Anti-Synthovision with primary shapes and Boolean modeling, he perceived that, he put that into his mind, shook it around, and out came the light cycle. He just drew it, you know, it, he, he, he figured it out. And whether it was the tanks or the recognizer, the ones that he designed, he just knew that. So he created what Steve Westbury and I called mind jewels. Mm -hmm. They just drop out of his imagination onto the page. And he, like other great artists, have this imagination. They see this image and they're so fascinated by it, in love with it, that they will put in whatever amount of work it takes to create it in the physical world for you and I to see it and for themselves to see it. He was willing to go through zillions of hours of painting to see it. Thank God for him. If you have an imagination, if you have talent, use it. You have to get into a dance with the process that you love. Put energy into it daily for it to teach you something. If you're a painter, you have to paint every day. If you're a writer, write every day. If you're a dancer, dance every day. You have to get into this dance with the process that you that you love and by putting energy into it it will teach you intro music by me rest of music by wendy carlos from the tron soundtrack subscribe to the io tower on apple podcasts or at flemingcomputer.com tron 
and join me at patreon.com slash ddprogram. Until next time, I'm your host, David Fleming. End of line.